Hello and welcome to Skepticast, the show where the dumbest students at Harvard come together to make you feel smart. Today, we're asking a simple question. Where do white people come from? White people have been in the news recently, since around 1492 or so, and it's not always positive. You know, people talk a lot of shit on white people, and as a white person myself, I just kind of want to say, like, what did we ever do to anybody else? Oh, uh, my producer Mimi seems to be uh, screaming at me, but she's stuck on mute. <laughs> the Zoom era, right? Um, I'm, I'm kidding, of course, though. White people, we don't have the best history. We have a history of taking things that don't belong to us, like Brooklyn or culture and slang. Uh, we do do some things well. I say that primarily because as a skinny white guy, I'm actually legally obligated to defend the band Vampire Weekend. But our question today is more specific. Where do white people come from? You're probably thinking Europe, but that's not our question. See, we know where Europeans come from, and that's a tiny cave with funny accents, aged cheese, and a bunch of angry popes. But Europeans are French, they're English, they're Danish. They need a lot of sunscreen, but historically they didn't call themselves white. See, it was after mass waves of immigration to America, assimilation, and intermarriage that Europeans went from German and English and Welsh and Irish and so on to just white. In her book White Identity Politics, Duke political scientist Ashley Jardina points out that many white Americans today are descended from immigrants who, when they first got to America, would not have been considered white. So whiteness can expand and contract like one of those messy pastries on the Great British Bake Off. Whiteness as an identity, it's really an American invention. And like most American inventions, it was created by immigrants. So how did all this happen? Today, we're going to focus on one historical example, which goes a long way to explain how white people became white people. And that is the Great Migration. And that's a large movement of African-Americans from the South to the North in the United States. Uh, for today's episode, I interviewed Marco Tabellini. He's a professor of political economy at Harvard Business School, and uh, he's also my old professor, so it was actually pretty fun to flip the script and cold call him instead. Now, on to today's episode. First, the Great Migration. Now, here's Marco explaining the Great Migration. The Great Migration is referred to by historians uh, when talking about uh, the massive movement of African-Americans outside, uh, who moved away from the U.S. South and into the U.S. West and North, between 1910 and 1970, around 6 million African-Americans moved away from the South. This happened in two waves, between 1915 and 1930, uh, during the first Great Migration, when roughly 1 million and a half Black uh, people moved out, and then during the 30s, this uh, movement uh, kind of paused because of the Great Depression. But then after 1940, it started again, and another four and a half African Americans left the US South. And clearly, this was an episode that changed uh, dramatically the racial boundaries and the racial demographic composition of the United States. So, six million African Americans left the South. For context, the U.S. population in 1920 was a little over 100 million. So that's like 6% of the total population just moving. In today's numbers, that's the rough equivalent of the entire state of Florida just going somewhere else. 
which honestly is like not such a bad idea. I'm seriously like, wasn't Trump trying to buy Greenland? Maybe we can just trade Greenland for Florida. I actually think that would be kind of a beautiful thing that Trump and the Democrats could come together on. It would be nice to see some bipartisanship. That's all I'm saying. So it's important to highlight the Great Migration. It wasn't just one thing. It's not like one day every Black person kind of just pieced out for the North. It was actually a decades-long process. And unsurprisingly, the equivalent of the entire population of Florida just ditching one spot and showing up in another had a huge impact on the country. According to the Princeton economist Leah Bustan, who writes with Marco, our guest, uh, the Great Migration fundamentally reshaped the southern farming economy and by extension the whole economy of the U.S. Because African Americans, they fled the South, and that meant all these southern farmers, they had to rethink their whole business model. Because, like, when their whole kind of strategy of, like, denying even the most basic human rights of most of their workforce kind of backfired on them, it turns out they had a lot of change to implement. So the farms in the South, they started to consolidate. They actually ended up investing a lot more in technology and became more productive. And they actually also shifted a lot of the kinds of crops that they were producing. For the African-Americans themselves, it had a positive impact, but it was a little bit more mixed. So uh, their economic outcomes in the North were much better than those who stayed behind, especially for the subsequent generations. But it also meant that many Black families, they had to leave behind everything they knew. Smithsonian Magazine profiled one young child of the Great Migration. In 1935, at just four years old, he sat with his family in the front of the train moving to the North. At the time, Blacks actually sat in the front of a train because that would be the first to absorb impact in the event of a crash. Yep. The impact of leaving behind everything he knew and showing up to a new place left him with a stutter and a fear of speaking. After bullying, he went mute for nearly eight years. Finally, in high school, a teacher coaxed him into reading poetry in front of the class, and he regained his confidence in speaking. That little boy's name was James Earl Jones. If you don't know that name, I promise you, you know his voice. Look, Simba. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. Yep. The voice of Mufasa and Darth Vader and one of the most respected actors of his generation, James Earl Jones, was a child of the Great Migration. Other children and grandchildren of the Great Migration include Jackie Robinson, the first African-American to play Major League Baseball, Lorraine Hansberry, whose play A Raisin in the Sun is considered one of the greatest American plays ever written, and innumerable other cultural icons, uh, Tupac Shakur, Denzel Washington, Whitney Houston, Ella Fitzgerald, the list just goes on and on and on. So you might be wondering, what the hell does all this have to do with white people? See, the massive movement of African Americans, it changed the social dynamics between all the European immigrants that were in the North. Before the Great Migration, the Brits and the Scots banded together, they didn't like the Italians, and everybody hated the Irish. But with a massive influx of African Americans, that started to change. So here's Marco explaining this. As African Americans moved northward, the uh, European immigrants uh, who used to be perceived as distant uh, culturally from native whites became part of the majority group. And the idea in our paper, we argue, was that uh, when African-Americans arrived to the U.S. North and West, uh, this represented uh, 
the arrival of a new outgroup in the society, and this outgroup was more different along a new and salient dimension in the eyes of the native whites relative to, say, an Italian immigrant. So let me give you, given my Italian background, a simple example of how I think of the process. Basically, until 1910, an Italian immigrant moving, say, to New York City was perceived as an Italian Catholic immigrant. After 1920, the same Italian person, after the arrival of hundreds of thousands of African Americans, was likely perceived much more as simply a white individual and his or her religious faith and uh, the language that he or she spoke kind of became second order, at least at first sight. Long story short, when a bunch of black people started showing up, the Europeans suddenly cared a lot less about who was Italian or German or Catholic or Protestant, and suddenly cared a lot more about who was the most pale. See, for most of U.S. history, white, it wasn't a fixed identity. As just one example, let's take the Irish. So beginning around 1845, with the potato famine in Ireland, millions of Irish left their homeland for the U.S. When they got to the U.S., basically everybody hated them. Uh, both because of their Irish ethnicity, but also because they were Catholic, which is like a big no-no. So divides within what we now think of as white people were pretty common uh, because of these sort of linguistic divides and accent divides and also their religion. Basically, people will always find some way to discriminate against other people. With the massive influx of African Americans from the South, however, the socially and economically dominant British and the Scots and the other sort of, quote, native white people... To them, the Irish suddenly started looking a little less leprechaun and a lot more just like good, nice white people. But that's actually, that's not all. So this is really interesting because the case study of the Irish, it shows that prejudice is strong, but racism is stronger. It also shows there's a lot of ways to get to racism. And I actually think that that's not something that we acknowledge enough, which is the diversity within the racist community. So the discrimination against the Irish it shaped their attitudes towards black people. In the 1850s, uh, the Know Nothing Party emerged uh, uh, strongly in the Northeast and uh, in particular Massachusetts and Boston against uh, Irish uh, immigrants that were coming. And those same Irish immigrants then were among, according to historical sources, among the strongest opponents of African Americans and those that displayed the highest degree of racism. And one reason pointed out by historical literature is that uh, Irish immigrants, but not just Irish, Italians as well, had to signal their whiteness to the native whites. Uh, And so the best way for doing that was precisely to show off, in some sense, uh, the racism against this new outgroup to signal to the majority group that, hey, guys, look, we are also part of your own group. We are against this other group. And so there is abundant evidence of the clash between uh, Irish immigrants in the 20s and in the African-American migrants in several northern cities. Basically, if America were a high school, the Irish in the north kept getting beat up and getting their lunch money stolen. And then a bunch of new kids arrived from the South, which is all the black people. And rather than band together with the new kids and try to beat up the popular kids, the Irish started just beating up the new kids in order to try to fit in with the popular kids. Except instead of like 
finally getting an invite to Brad's party, it's like obtaining meaningful economic and political power. So the Irish example, it really illustrates a grand American tradition. Come to America, get shit on by everybody who currently lives there until you accumulate enough economic, social, and political capital to turn around and do the exact same thing to the next group. Rinse and repeat. Side note, it is remarkable to think about how much thought and energy and effort went into just being racist. Like, if white people had just gotten over racism, I swear to God we would have flying cars by now. But here we are. So, I asked Marco the million-dollar question and kind of the point of this whole episode. Do you think it's accurate to say that white people, you know, as an identity category, obviously not, you know, as a people of European heritage. Do you think it's accurate to say that white people were invented in America? So one may be tempted to say yes. And, and I think this, this is an example in which probably you would say yes. It's possible, though, that uh, what we now are referring to whiteness uh, in other contexts that has different uh, names, but refers to this idea of majority group. Now, I guess in the American context, we know that the concept of whiteness has become synonymous of majority group. From these lenses, I think the answer to your question is yes. So the short answer, as you heard, is yes. White people were invented in America. The long answer is long and more complicated and does not quite fit into a snarky little podcast. So, Look, it is a bit of a simplification to say the Great Migration, you know, led to like the invention of white people, but it's not much of one because it accelerated the whole process through which a bunch of pale, pasty people who all hated each other suddenly became one coherent racial and political identity united solely by our love of froyo, indie music, and the word hokey. So this episode might not have been like the most uplifting. Um, I guess that's kind of like becoming our brand these days. But I asked Marco, what could we take away from his research that might actually make us a little bit more hopeful? What lessons could we draw for how we could actually improve race relations today? You know, with everything going on around Black Lives Matter, is there anything you think that we could learn to improve the situation today? This is, of course, a very hard question to answer. I think there are lessons to learn. And one is precisely the, we should try to give and send a message in which, and this is of course easier to say and much harder to put in practice, but try to send a message that emphasizes identities that are kind of cross the racial boundaries. As for the civil rights movement, the idea of a working class as Today, perhaps, the idea of, I think, in some sense, the idea that back then Barack Obama was stressing of, like, we are Americans. I mean, I'm, I'm an immigrant, whatever, but, like, mm -hmm. uh, the Amer America is, 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 is a concept that uh, belongs to everybody. And so, to the extent to which we can uh, frame these issues uh, in a longer dimension that... Uh, reduces the potential for competition in status or other resources that might make it easier for the American society to reduce the inequalities that we know are pervasive. See, identity categories, they're not fixed. Like, 
I identified as straight for years. <laughs> and we, I think we all know how that worked out. So as we think about the lessons to take away from this, I think like the big takeaways are that A, race is just basically made up, but so is Mark Cuban. And we can't deny the pernicious influence that either of these things have had on American life. And B, while we need to respect Black people's narratives of their own identity and respect that their shared experience does kind of uh, create this identity, emphasizing economic concerns and also just sort of a broader shared American identity could alleviate some of the sort of uh, divisiveness along uh, the lines of identity politics that right now feels like it's taken over so much of American life. I want to thank Marco Tabellini, our guest today, for his time and his excellent research. If you are interested, the full interview with Marco will be available on our website at theskepticast.com. The full interview is a little over 30 minutes, but it goes into a lot of other topics that we just didn't really have time for in today's episode, but it includes the Chinese Exclusion Act. Uh, we talk about how the Great Migration impacted uh, Chinese residents of California. Um, he also talks a little bit about how uh, studies of residential segregation uh, showed that white people in segregated neighborhoods were sometimes more likely to support anti-racist legislation than white people in mixed neighborhoods. So there's a lot in the interview. It's really fascinating, and I would uh, encourage you all to go listen. And that's the end of our episode for today. Thank you so, so much for listening. If you enjoyed our episode, please like and subscribe to our podcast on Apple or Spotify. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. That helps us go up in search rankings, and that helps us become extremely rich and famous, and we would really appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you.